Our morning sermons are taking us through the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to that little cluster of churches there. We're looking at a very particular incident this morning recorded for us in Galatians chapter 2, and Phil's going to come and read to us now. We're reading from Galatians 2, starting at verse 11. Galatians 2, 11 to 14, titled Paul Confronts Peter. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile Christians who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? Thank you, choir. Let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, in these moments we ask that you would speak to us, apply this word to our hearts and lives, and strengthen us by your grace to obey. To your honor and glory we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. The gospel was spreading. The church was growing. Unity was being uh, promoted at the very highest levels. What could possibly go wrong? We have to understand that as the church advances, the devil is mobilized to direct his energies to stymie any such progress. And we've already seen in these opening verses of our study of Galatians that Satan had sought to distort doctrine. He sought to add additional things to the message of the gospel so that people might be led into captivity. And now we see here that divisions are being developed. Divisions are being developed. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you'll realize that there are two central characters in that book. They loom large on all its pages. The opening half of the book, the central character is the Apostle Peter. He's the leader among the twelve. He's the rock upon which the church is to be founded. The second half of the book, the spotlight moves and it then rests upon the Apostle Paul and his gospel spreading ministry, particularly along the northern shores of the Mediterranean Sea. Last Sunday morning, we saw these characters and we left them, Paul and Peter, getting along fine. And they were engaging in this significant gesture of offering one another the right hand of fellowship. They were each recognizing and rejoicing in their distinctive ministry, celebrating God's grace in their lives and through their work. But verse 11 begins with the word, but. And it introduces to us a very different set of circumstances. And it's important to remind ourselves right at the very outset that when God 
decides to use individuals' lives to build his church. He always chooses to work through weak vessels, each with their very significant cracks. God does not use good people to build his church. Why? Because there are no good people available. There are only saved sinners at his disposal. And so God takes the very headstrong Peter, this overly confident leader of the twelve, this man who told Jesus that he didn't know what he was talking about when Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times. And he took Paul, this man who thought he was doing God a favor as he ran around trying to imprison new Christians. And these two cracked vessels were God's instruments in founding and establishing his church and this message of the gospel of the grace in the first century. And what we discover, what we discover in our text this morning is that these two men are no longer shaking hands. Now they're standing toe-to-toe in what is a heavyweight clash. Two spiritual heavyweights in a confrontation that was essential, necessary for the survival of gospel freedom. And as we begin to look at this encounter between Peter and Paul, I want just to spend a a moment or two on a little side channel. Looking at uh, the biblical wisdom on how to handle Disputes between believers. How to handle disputes between believers. And the first point here is it's not in this text, but it's an important one. It's the covering of love. The covering of love. Not every instance requires confrontation. It should be the normal and primary practice among believers that love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4 Verse 8. There are issues that ought to be immediately forgiven and swiftly forgotten without words ever having to be exchanged. Our normal attitude as believers when we interact with others and when things are done that ought not to be done, we ought to get over it and get on with it. In the immortal words of Elsa, we have to let it go. The covering of love. Love should cover many of the wrongs that are done. And they should be quickly forgiven and forgotten. Secondly, we have to note the confronting of principles. There are times when we must speak out. And in those moments, it should always be on a matter of principle and not on personality. Praise God that he has made every one of us very different. Different from each other. And sometimes these delightful differences lead to disagreements. There's a clash between personalities, tensions arise, and difficulties are the the outcome. And in such moments, we ought to rejoice in the goodness of God and the richness of His creation that He hasn't made us all exactly the same. We don't all think exactly the same. And there are times when people might attack us personally, and they might trample over our good name. And they, you know, might stir up within us this great desire that we would strike back against them. 
But we need to remember that God has forgiven us. We've already received rich grace from his hand. And if there's vengeance necessary against anyone, God will look after that. We don't have to worry about that. As, as, as the Lord said to Moses way back in the book of Exodus, he said, you need only be still, I will fight for you. But sometimes issues arise that impact the honor of God's name. Not our name, the honor of God's name. That impact the, the good of his kingdom and the purity of the gospel. And when that happens, we must be prepared to take a stand. And so Paul here confronts Peter for the sake of gospel freedom and on a matter of principle, not a matter of personality. Thirdly then, the courage of caring. Paul had enough courage to care and so to confront. Let me confess to you that sometimes I allow things to slide. Not because I'm so gracious, but because I'm a card. Sometimes in church life, important issues are, are swept under the carpet, not because of grace-filled hearts, but because one party doesn't care enough about the other party, or the issue at hand, or the glory of God, or is afraid that trouble might resolve, and is so not bothered to deal with these issues. Paul confronts Peter because he's courageous and because he cares. He does not confront him from a position of superiority. He can't say, you know, I'm much better than you. You should listen to me because I'm so wise. No. Paul's approach to Peter is as one recovering Pharisee to another. But he challenges Peter because he cares about his conduct and its impact on the Christian community 2,000 years ago. And fourth little rule is the idea of the circle of correction. The circle of correction must be as broad as the circle of knowledge. Now people say, why didn't uh, Paul take Peter aside? Why didn't he just have a quiet word with him in the corner and say, Peter, look, really, do you think this is why? Should you not try and change your behavior? No, he didn't do that. It might, to our minds, be considered as a kindly Christian thing to do. But the failure in the life of Peter was a public failure. And it had impacted the lives of others in the church. And this issue at stake was so important that it needed a public rebuke and restoration. And not, not everyone needed to know. The whole world didn't need to know about this situation. But everybody in the church within Antioch needed to know about this. They'd all been aware of Peter's conduct. And they needed to be party to Peter's correction. So what great crime had Peter committed that Paul had to dress him down publicly? What was the big issue on this uh, that caused these two heavyweights to climb? We read in verse 11. When Cephas, that's the Aramaic form of rock or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. What was the issue? Well, it had to do with dining habits. Dining habits. Now, we really struggle to understand what are all of the implications of eating in the scriptures. But the Bible has a, a great deal to say about food. Praise God for that. 
eating is central, whether it's eating a, a, an apple in the Garden of Eden or the marriage banquet of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. It's all about eating. And if you read Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel is absolutely littered with illustrations and stories of, of eating. And 2,000 years ago, eating was about identity. Eating was about identity. What you eat says a great deal about who you are. Hopefully you understand how uh, Peter's life was transformed. Right in the middle of the book of Acts, chapters 10 and 11, the Lord went to extreme lengths to change Peter's mind. To tell Peter that God was at work among the Gentiles. He was saving them, bringing them into his family, into his fellowship, into his church. Two whole chapters devoted to Peter's mind being transformed. And there in chapter 10 of the book of Acts, verses 13 and 14, God speaks. We we read, it says, A voice came to him and said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Peter at one point was really proud of his eating habits. He could claim never to have transgressed the food laws of the Old Testament. He had always, by his eating, marked himself as a distinct member of the Jewish community. Because eating has a great deal to do With our identity. But eating also in those days was to do with identifying. A matter of identifying. In Bible times, when you ate a meal, you showed that you were identifying with those you ate with around the table. To break bread together was to establish a significant bond with someone. A bond of confidence and trust. I'm not sure that we have that same understanding today. But hopefully you'll recognize that Jesus was many times criticized in the Gospels by Pharisees and religious leaders. Because as they noted, he ate with sinners. For example, in Matthew 9 verse 11 it says, When the Pharisees saw this. They said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? They believed that as Jesus ate with these people, he was identifying himself with them. And this would ultimately lead to his contamination by sinners. They, in their mind, thought that Jesus eating with sinners would lead to Jesus becoming a sinner. And in a sense, they were right. Jesus did come to identify with sinners. He came to live among us so that he would die for us and bear the just punishment for our sin. He had no sin of his own and he did not contract sin by sitting around a table eating with sinners. But he came among us and he ate with us. That he might bear the guilt of every man's sin. So that the subsequent punishment that was poured out upon him at Calvary was the punishment that we rightfully deserve. Eating has to do with identity and identifying with those with whom we eat. 
please excuse my caricature, political caricature, but you will have realized that over uh, the last couple of decades, there, there's been a lot of discussion as to what it means to be British. And these are real-time issues in our world. So in England, we see how uh, they've responded to the sense of being assimilated into, uh, into Europe, into the EU, and they've now had Brexit. And you've seen how there's been this response against the rise of, of militant Islam and, and the influx of economic migrants from North Africa and Eastern Europe. And all these and many other factors in, in England have led to the rise of, of parties such as UKIP. And, and we've seen this reactionary uh, politics in England as people try to work hard to protect their British identity. And we've seen a little bit of what's happening in Scotland. Now they are crying out for another referendum on independence because the Scottish Nationalist Party has dominated politics there. And strangely then, being uh, independent, they want to reconnect and find identity and solace in the EU. And we know all about this in Northern Ireland. We're facing a changing demographic, a loss of a clear unionist majority. And, and we're also finding that accompanied with a, 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 a deafening whisper of, of an anti-British agenda from republicanism. And we see seemingly leadership, lo, leaderless loyalism trying to find a, an answer to this, trying to figure out what it means to be British and how are we to defend our Britishness. And apologies for that quick sketch, and there's big holes in that straight away. But, but you understand, you get the point. In these days, in this age, people are trying to work out their, their national, their political identity, and it's a struggle. And people are being uh, forced to want to defend that, promote it. And, and as we think about that, and we try to understand that, we can begin to, at least in a little part to think our, mind, our, our way into the minds of first century Jews, people like Peter. Now, Paul penned these words toward the end of the 40s AD. And by the year 70 AD, the Romans had marched into Jerusalem, had destroyed the temple, uh, worship there at the center of uh, Judaism was destroyed. And, and there was devastating impacts upon the Jewish nation. And because of the threats and the rise of the power of Rome and uh, the cultural assimilation into, into Greek culture... For people like Peter and James and John and Paul, they were trying so hard to maintain their Jewishness, which they felt was in danger of being swept away. And thus we see in these first decades of the rise of the church, there was a, a defensiveness, a promotion of, of Jewishness. And, and they were threatened because they didn't want to become indistinguishable from the, the rise of the Gentile church. And so... It was a great temptation to them to want to make Gentile Christians behave like Jews. To identify with Jewishness so that that cultural identity might be maintained. So we have this incident where Peter comes. He's in Antioch. He's sitting with Gentiles. God has taught him this lesson, Acts 10, Acts 11. He's learned that God receives Gentiles. He sits and he eats with them. He's enjoying his pork chops. And then some other religious leaders, some Christians from Jerusalem come. They're associating with James, the leader of the church there. They come from a, a background of a Phariseeism. And when Peter realizes they're watching him, he changes his behavior. He no longer eats with the Gentiles. He re resorts back to kosher eating. 
He segregates himself from Jews. And such is his influence that other believers in Antioch are are following his example. Indeed, Paul is shocked. Even Barnabas falls into this error. And because of this, Paul confronts Peter. Okay, so what's the big deal? Peter and Paul had a fallout about pork sausages 2,000 years ago. Who cares? Does that really matter in Portadown this morning? Well, let me suggest to you that it's vital importance. For it's a great deal to do with us. And to our commitment to ensure that we hold to no other gospel. Three points of application. And the first is this. The We must be careful of the power of lesser loyalties. We must be careful of the power of lesser loyalty. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if your hope rests in Him, then your identity is supremely in that relationship with Jesus. And all other lesser loyalties must be submitted to that supreme loyalty of your commitment to Jesus Christ. So it's good to be loyal to the Queen. It's good to be proud of your nationality. And really there's nothing wrong with supporting Liverpool Football Club. But we must beware because these lesser loyalties can become idolatrous things and they can usurp our primary loyalty to Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and Savior. He is the one who supremely must rule in our hearts and we must be careful of the power of lesser loyalties to capture our hearts. Number two, we must beware of the lure of self-salvation. The danger of the lure of self-salvation. Pulling yourself up by your bootstraps does not work. Your identity in Jesus is maintained by Him. It's for once and forever. He, by His conduct, has perfected you in God's sight. It's never your here and now conduct. It's His once forever conduct that sets you right with God. And you may fail and you may fall, but Jesus did not. He offers his perfection for all your imperfections. And you have no reason to fear that because Jesus has lived perfectly, there is now nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 25 years ago or so, I was ministering in Ardstraw. And during that time, a man called Robin came to faith in Jesus Christ. He was a prominent uh, officer in the Ulster Defence Regiment. He lived in an isolated home in the country. Uh, And he understood that in that border region, his life was particularly precarious. And as we talked together, realizing the danger and the threat that was against him, he told me what I was to say at his funeral When he would be murdered. Praise God he wasn't. But he lived under real threat. And he instructed me to preach on Matthew 10 verse 28. Which says. Do not fear those who can kill the body. But cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul 
and body in hell. Because of his faith in Jesus Christ, because of his confidence in Christ's finished work, Robin could live without fear. Without fear. Psalm 56 verse 4 states, In God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And here we we share this wonderful good news of the heart of the gospel that we see over and over again in the pages of Galatians. That there is nothing that you can do to save yourself. And praise God, there's nothing that you have to do to save yourself. You don't have to save yourself from people. From sin, Jesus does this for you. But fear of man, fear of man, can cause us to be out of step with the gospel as it did for Peter here. He failed to remember that he was justified before God through faith in Jesus Christ. But we must remember that that is our only hope of justification. Therefore, we never need to justify ourselves before others. We can say with the psalmist as we began our service, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When we trust in Jesus, we don't have to save ourselves. He's finished that work for us. And finally, we have to wear the inclination to assimilation. We must be careful of the inclination to assimilation. Paul asks this question of Cephas, of Peter. He says, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now Paul here uses a very forceful word. It's a word that he knew all about because that had been his primary goal in the early days of his life. He had gone around trying to force Christians to renounce their faith in Jesus. To bring them back into Judaism. And now he sees Peter applying a similar sort of pressure to Gentiles. Forcing them to live as Jews. Thus Peter is adding to and corrupting the gospel message. God's word makes it clear. That we must identify with and have fellowship with. Anyone who believes in in God and trusts in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And any refusal to eagerly pursue such fellowship is a denial of the gospel. And this is the true unity that we have in Christ. We are not into assimilation. We are not into forcing people to be just like us. Rather, we love patchwork. As God stitches together people of differing thoughts, differing culturing backgrounds, differing ways of living. So that our fellowship might be enriched with the differences. Now we have evidence that Peter accepted Paul's rebuke. And he changed his patterns of conduct. Perhaps the greatest evidence of that is that we are here meeting today. This was a crucial battle that Peter and Paul fought. Because if these folk from Jerusalem had continued in their mission to make everybody just be Jews, the gospel message would have had suffered lasting damage. Christianity would have merely become a sect of Judaism. The world would not have been changed. The missionary movement would have faltered and floundered. But praise God, Paul's rebuke restored Peter and his passion for the purity of the gospel. And the cause of salvation alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Paul's rebuke restored Peter to gospel purity. 
And let me finish with the words of, of Martin Luther in his commentary on Galatians. He writes this. No man has ever fallen so grievously that he could not have stood up again. On the other hand, no one has such a sure footing that he cannot fall. If Peter fell, I too may fall. If he stood up again, so can I. Let's pray together. Father, we thank and praise you for your goodness, grace, and blessing upon our lives. You are good to us, and we thank you. Lord, you save us. There is nothing of ourselves that we can offer to you. It's all of your amazing grace. Continue that work to mold and make us into your likeness so that we ably represent you before this world. And forgive us for our foolishness. For these lesser loyalties taking a primary place in our hearts. For our desire to make people into our image rather than into yours. For our promotion of divisions when we ought to revel in diversity and See unity among your people. Father, we thank you for the courage of Paul that he would confront Peter for the cause of your kingdom. Lord, if necessary, may we speak the words in love that we ought to say to others that they might be called back into the right pathway. And above all, we pray that you would build your church, that you would be the one who transforms lives. For we know your work is perfect and it's finished and full and when it's done... It can't be undone. So move by your spirit. Display your saving grace in the lives of many. To the honor and glory of the name of Jesus Christ through whom we pray. Amen.